Matthew 12, starting at verse 22. Then one was brought to him, meaning Jesus, who was demon-possessed, blind and mute. And he healed him, so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. All the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Meaning, could this be a descendant of David? Uh, And that was a characteristic of the Messiah. Now, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Beelzebub is another name of Satan. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, Satan, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. And then this morning, starting at verse 31, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, meaning Jesus, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Someone sent this email to a Christian website. It reads, I would like to know if what it says in Matthew's Gospel is true. It states that every sin is forgivable except if a person speaks badly about the Holy Spirit. I attended a private Christian school and one morning my Bible teacher said that a person is not forgiven if he or she speaks against the Holy Spirit. But as soon as the teacher said that, I thought something inappropriate against the Holy Spirit that I didn't mean to. It just happened. I'm a Christian, and the question is, am I still forgiven, or am I going to be condemned because I thought something bad about the Holy Spirit? I'm going to answer that question in this second part of a message on the unpardonable sin. The word unpardonable means unforgivable. And so this is the one sin that God said was unforgivable. Jesus was introduced to a man, as we just read, that was demon-possessed. And his demonized condition caused him to be both blind and mute. Mute meaning he couldn't see and he couldn't speak. Jesus cast the demon out of this man, and as a result of this exorcism, he was healed, and then he could both see and speak. This exorcism and miraculous healing convinced a large number of Jewish people that had witnessed that miracle that Jesus could be the promised Messiah. The Pharisees were aware of that and were upset that these people were, according to them, being deceived. And so in an attempt to discredit Jesus, 
those religious authorities said that Jesus cast out this demon, and that part was undeniable, but he cast out this demon through the enablement of Satan. Those insecure Pharisees argued that it was Satan himself, here mentioned as Beelzebub, that empowered and enabled Jesus to perform that exorcism. Jesus heard that accusation, and he then rebutted that bogus charge through using three basic arguments. We addressed those three arguments last time. The first argument is found in verses 25 and 26, and demonstrated to his accusers that their charges against him constituted a logical absurdity. A logical absurdity. If Satan cast out his own demons, then he was divided against himself. And he was contributing in doing that to his own self-destruction. Remember that outside of the Godhead, Satan is the most intelligent being in existence. And he's not stupid enough to assign his own forces to fight against one another and internally destroy his agenda. That's illogical and absurd. The second argument is found in verses 27 and 28 and demonstrated that the accusation against Jesus was inconsistent. Inconsistent. Jesus was not the only one at that time that practiced exorcism. Some of the other Jewish men exercised demons, and the argument was that if Jesus cast out demons through Satan, as per this charge against him, then it was probable that those other ex exorcists were doing the same thing. But the Pharisees didn't want to accuse those other Jewish exorcists of doing that, because then that would get them into trouble with those exorcists, and so they accused only Jesus. And that was inconsistent and hypocritical on their part. The third argument is found in verses 29 and 30, and demonstrated how it would be impossible for someone to exorcise a demon unless he first managed to get control of his master Satan. It would be impossible to exorcise a demon from someone unless he first managed to gain control over his master who was Satan. If Jesus had gotten smacked down on Satan so that he could cast out one of his demons, that meant Jesus used a power greater than Satan in order to do that. And he did. According to verse 28, Jesus did what he did in casting out this demon through the empowerment and enablement of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that energized and enabled Jesus to cast out this demon. That's the reason this unpardonable sin is also called blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Because to credit Satan for performing this exorcism was to blaspheme the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit was the one responsible for this exorcism, not Satan. Verse 31 again, Jesus concluded his argumentation and said, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Verse 32, 
Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, that's Jesus, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. That means permanent unforgiveness. Let me define the unpardonable sin according to its correct historical context. Notice, this is on the note sheet. The unpardonable sin, also called blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, was committed when the Pharisees, that sect of religious Jewish men, uh, attributed to Satan the miracle that the Holy Spirit, operating through Jesus, had performed in casting out a demon. That sin, in its original historical context, was committed when those Pharisees uh, attributed to Satan this miracle that the Holy Spirit, operating through Jesus, had performed in casting out this demon. That means those Pharisees credited Satan for something that the Holy Spirit had actually done. And that constituted blasphemy. And it was blasphemy committed against the Holy Spirit. The dictionary defines blasphemy as profane or mocking speech, writing or action concerning God or anything regarded as sacred. Merle Unger, now deceased, famous theologian from Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, some of us, that name might sound familiar. He authored the, uh, the Unger's Bible Dictionary an excellent volume. Dr. Unger said that there are two general forms of blasphemous behavior. One is attributing some evil to God, meaning attributing some evil action to God, or denying that God has performed some good work, some good work that should be attributed to Him and no one else. Second form of being blasphemous is attributing certain characteristics of God to a creature, including man. Notice I said certain characteristics, not all characteristics, as we are all called on to godliness. An example of that, pre-COVID, uh, it wasn't uncommon to see someone holding up a large signed at a professional sporting event that in large letters read John 3.16. The man that started that practice is Roland Stewart. He is best known for wearing a rainbow-colored Afro-styled wig. That's Roland on the left, and that's one of the signs that uh, is held up or was held up often at games. Um, he, was, he, was, he became famous for holding up those large John 3.16 signs. Uh, he did that primarily in the 70s and 80s and some into the 90s. The man claimed to be a Christian, but that's questionable. He's a complete mess. He was convicted of multiple kidnapping charges and is now serving three consecutive life sentences in Mule Creek State Prison. I mean, that's where we should... All good Christians go, right? So, uh, John 3.16 is the most famous verse in the entire Bible. 
And the blasphemous thing is that some professional athletes have actually attributed that verse to themselves. Former professional wrestler Cold Stone Steve Austin, whom a reliable source told me that he has purchased a home in this valley, so we might run into him. Um, Cold Stone Steve Austin had fans of that uh, during his career uh, that in wrestling arenas would hold, uh, hold up placards that read Austin 316. This picture is Steve himself. Uh, wearing a t-shirt, reading Austin 3.16. Um, it's doubtful Mr. Austin understands this, so it probably isn't intentional, but people, that's blasphemous. That's blasphemous. That's unacceptable because things that are exclusively God's shouldn't be attributed to us. One more example that seems benign uh, probably most people perceive it as something benign, is people want to know what to call me. I answer to Pastor, Pastor Larry. Uh, in other congregations, I would be called preacher because that's sort of what I do. And some just call me Larry. Uh, and that's fine. All of that is fine. Um, but I would prefer that people not call me reverend. In the older edition of the King James translation, the one I was raised on, Psalm 111 verse 19 reads, Holy and reverend is his name, meaning God's name. Most modern translations read, Holy and awesome is his name. But I've never forgotten that older rendering. Holy and reverend is his name. If reverend is God's name, then it would seem inappropriate to address me using that same name. Uh, this is a personal preference. And I'm not super dogmatic about this because most people aren't aware of that word's connection to God. And so it is used out of respect. And I can appreciate that. Different faith traditions uh, sometimes describe their ministers as reverent. The Church of England and even Catholicism exaggerate this practice, though, because both groups refer to its archbishops as the most reverend, so-and-so, and bishops are called the right reverend, so-and-so. I would feel uncomfortable, extremely uncomfortable, addressing someone as the most reverend. People, God and God alone is the most reverend. The Hebrew word translated as reverend means to revere, and God is the one to be revered, not me so much. It seems that these Pharisees were primarily guilty of the first blasphemous form Dr. Unger mentioned because their accusation denied the Holy Spirit credit in enabling Jesus to cast out this demon, and that accusation also attributed evil to Jesus in arguing that he did what he did through the assistance of Satan. It is blasphemous, people, blasphemous to give Satan credit for something that the Holy Spirit does. And that is exactly what those Pharisees did. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit does not mean to just curse the Holy Spirit 
Although cursing the Holy Spirit does constitute blasphemy, it is not the same as this particular blasphemous sin mentioned in Matthew 12. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit doesn't mean to just reject the Holy Spirit. It is true that to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to reject the Spirit, but it's possible to reject the Spirit and not be blasphemous about it. I do think, don't miss this, I do think that this accusation from the Pharisees was symptomatic of their more root sin of rejecting Jesus. The Pharisees had incredible long-term exposure to Jesus doing undeniable miracles that constituted irrefutable evidence that Jesus was, in fact, the promised Messiah. But in spite of all this empirical evidence these men had been exposed to, the Pharisees still rejected him. There are two basic categories of individuals that reject Jesus Christ. One, One are those that argue, I cannot I cannot believe, meaning I have significant questions, I have intellectual problems, and until I resolve those problems and have those questions answered, I cannot believe. And if this person is open to investigating Christianity, then I can respect that position. And the second category are those that argue, I will not believe. I will not believe. There's this attitude. I've made up my mind. I'm not interested in continuing this discussion because I will not believe. I refuse to believe. The Pharisees were part of this second group, determined not to believe on Jesus, no matter how much messianic evidence there was. And that accusation against Jesus just solidified their rejection of him. Let me make three statements about this unpardonable sin. Three statements. Statement number one is that the unpardonable sin cannot be committed by a Christian. This sin cannot be committed by a Christian. The fact is that the only people on record in Scripture who committed this particular sin were the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were antagonistic non-Christians. There was no biblical reference to a Christian committing this sin. And the reason that a Christian cannot commit the unpardonable sin is because a Christian's sins have already all been pardoned. One more time, the reason a Christian cannot commit the unpardonable sin is because a Christian's sins have already been all pardoned. There were two categories of forgiveness. I've mentioned this from time to time. There is judicial forgiveness and parental forgiveness. Judicial forgiveness occurs at salvation. Parental forgiveness occurs post-salvation, meaning after salvation. Parental forgiveness is another subject to be addressed on another Sunday, but this text is addressing judicial forgiveness. And we mentioned in an abbreviated form judicial forgiveness last time. Judicial forgiveness is a legal concept. 
And to state that someone has been forgiven in a judicial sense means that he is not going to be subjected to eternal condemnation on his sin. Notice the definition. Judicial forgiveness is once and forever unrepeatable and permanent forgiveness that transpires at someone's salvation. It is forgiveness from God acting as a judge and results in the legal forgiveness of someone's sins, past, present, and even future sins. So this judicial forgiveness from God acting as a judge results in the legal forgiveness of all of someone's sins. The precise moment, the microsecond someone receives Jesus as his personal Savior, God, in a legal and judicial sense, pardons him, forgives him from all his sins, his past sins, his present sins, and even his future sins. Those sins are forgiven him in a judicial sense, and that means God is not going to pronounce a legal condemnation on him and incarcerate him in hell because of his sins. One of the most fantastic promises in the New Testament is found in Romans 8 and verse 1. Notice, there is therefore now no condemnation, that is a legal, that is legal worry, to those who are in Christ Jesus. The only people that are in Christ Jesus are Christians. That is our spiritual position as Christians. That is stated throughout the New Testament. We, as Christians, are in Christ. So this is a promise to Christians. And notice we are promised here that we are promised no legal condemnation on our sin. The Christian has judicial forgiveness from all his sins, past, present, and future. And that is the reason that theoretically even suicide could be forgiven someone in a judicial sense because a Christian has judicial forgiveness and that suicide was forgiven in that sense at his salvation. So he was forgiven of that potential sin the moment he received Jesus. One more time though, as I mentioned last time, Christian suicide is extremely rare. The reason is because Jesus said in John 10 and verse 10, I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. And the word abundantly means a better quality of life. We can experience a better quality of life with Jesus than without Jesus. And Christians tend to want to perpetuate that life, not end that life. So it is extremely rare. Colossians 2 verse 13, And you, in a historical sense, meaning these Christians at Colossae, and this is applicable to us, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he, God, has made alive together with him, Christ, having forgiven, notice this is past tense, having forgiven you all trespasses. And trespasses are sins. Notice, we are forgiven all not some, all trespasses. And this forgiveness from all our trespasses doesn't mean just forgiveness from all trespasses and sins we committed before salvation. 
that is a common, erroneous mistake people have made. People assume that all my sins were forgiven in the past, the ones I committed before salvation, but not so much now, moving forward. No, that is erroneous. All transgressions means all transgressions and sins are forgiven, period. Past, present, and future. That means in a judicial sense, we are totally forgiven. Now, if it is difficult to accept the concept that God forgives someone of his sins, that he is not now committed, if forgiveness of future sins is problematic to us, then think through this one. Number one is that all our sins were future when Jesus died on the cross. All of them. And second, and this is more important, if God did not forgive us in a judicial sense at our salvation of all our future sins, if all our future sins weren't forgiven at salvation, then we would be judicially unforgiven each time in the future that we committed another sin. Do we understand Judicial forgiveness is part and parcel to salvation. We cannot have salvation unless we have judicial forgiveness. So, that means that if we aren't forgiven of all sins, in a judicial sense it's salvation, then each time we sinned as a Christian, we would then be judicially unforgiven or unsaved. That would mean each time we sinned as a Christian, we would then need to re-receive Jesus in order to have judicial forgiveness for that sin we just committed. And because we are human and sin is inevitable, we would go in and out of judicial forgiveness and in and out of salvation ad infinitum. People, that's craziness. That means our spiritual status, if that were the case, would be up for grabs contingent on if we were forgiven or not forgiven at some exact moment in time. Understand something. Jesus Christ did not die in order to make our salvation a question mark. Jesus Christ sacrificed himself on a cross to make our salvation an explanation point. The Christian, King Arthur there, he struggles sometimes with me, I know. Sorry, sorry buddy, hang on. The Christian has total judicial forgiveness of all sins. So he cannot commit the unpardonable sin. He cannot have a sin on his soul that is unpardonable and unforgivable. Number two is that this unpardonable sin cannot now be committed in the exact same sense as the original unpardonable sin. This particular unpardonable sin, mentioned in Matthew 12, cannot now be committed in the exact same sense as the original unpardonable sin. I believe this unpardonable sin we have just read about was a sin unique to Jesus and those ancient Pharisees. And the special circumstances unique to that situation cannot be recreated. The reason those special circumstances cannot be recreated because Jesus is not here on this earth. 
To accuse Jesus of doing sorcery, as these Pharisees did, is not now possible because Jesus is not now here. But to accuse someone else of doing a miracle through the enablement of Satan is entirely possible because human beings can be fraudulent. Second <coughs> Corinthians 11 and verse 14 teaches that it is possible for Satan to disguise himself, counterfeit himself as one of the faithful angels. In this counterfeit role, Satan is able to assist someone through pretending to cast out a demon, through restricting his power over that possessed person in order to give the impression that this person is no longer possessed and in fact this person is still possessed. So in essence, if he does that, he has helped create a fake exorcism and this supposed exorcism has been occurring in the church for centuries and is still being practiced by certain cult members and false healers. I might mention that the Pharisees themselves had done that very thing on at least one other occasion. Probably the best known outside of Catholicism the best known of modern-day exorcists is a man named Bob Larson. Bob Larson. Bob is a, quote, expert on cults, the occult, and supernatural phenomena. He has authored 24 books. He has lectured in more than 100 countries. And he has been interviewed on countless, countless television programs. To document how famous or infamous he is, as an exorcist, a recent People magazine edition had a full-length article on his daughter, Bryn Larson, and her closest friends, sisters Tess and Savannah. For some time, that trio accompanied Bob on his exorcism excursions and were earlier known as um, the teenage exorcist. And that's Bob in the middle, of course. Um, He's in his late 70s now. According, and I might add the girls are now in their 20s and either in college or have graduated. According to Bob Larson, he has cast out more demons than any other exorcist. He claims he has exorcised demons from more than 40,000 possessed people. I didn't know there were that many people possessed. Well, that means outside the Beltway of Washington, D.C. Sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> forgive me, forgive me. I actually knew Bob Larson in the late 70s. We shared multiple meals together. We had numerous uh, serious personal conversations. I found him to be extremely intelligent. And articulate. His presentations are some of the most articulate I have ever heard. And trust me, I have heard a lot. At that time, he was a conservative evangelical. I'm not sure how he should be classified now. If he's still an evangelical, if he considers himself one, he is now on the more extreme fringe or lunatic fringe of evangelicalism. Bob conducts what he calls spiritual freedom rallies all across the United States. And those rallies focus in on actual exorcisms 
being conducted on stage. Critics contend, there's some evidence, that Bob is doing staged exorcisms because unless the same individuals are being possessed, delivered, or exercised, and then repossessed, then there's some of the same people being exercised in different cities. Bob has denied that criticism, so I don't know if Bob has assigned people to fake demon possession or not. I cannot comment on the genuineness of his supposed exorcisms. But I do know enough about Bob's current theology and some of his more questionable behavior that I cannot, in good conscience, I cannot recommend him and I cannot recommend what he does. And neither does Christian Research Institute. Question, and this is purely hypothetical, but what if we accused an exorcist, such as Mr. Larson, what if we accused an exorcist of using Satan to assist him in his supposed exorcisms, just as these Pharisees had accused Jesus? And then, over time, we learned that this exorcist is a sincere Christian, and he was probably acting under the influence of the Holy Spirit in performing that exorcism. If we did that, if we wrongly accused someone, if we falsely accused someone that had performed a legitimate exorcism of satanic association, would that be the same as committing the unpardonable sin? Would that be blaspheming the Holy Spirit? No, I don't believe so. And the reason I don't believe so is because there's a 50-50 chance that we could be correct in our assessment. Some charismatics disagree. Charles and Francis Hunter are a popular charismatic duo that have authored numerous books and have an extensive speaking schedule. In one of their books entitled, Why Should I Speak in Tongues?, the hunters compared anyone that questions certain charismatic experiences that we find unbiblical. Uh, the hunters compare someone that is critical of these charismatic experiences to those Pharisees who criticized Jesus and attributed his actions to Satan. The hunters infer that critics of the charismatic movement are close to blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And I guess that assertion on their part includes me as I am sometimes critical of some parts, some of the more extreme parts of the charismatic movement. Chuck Smith, who is now deceased, uh, an amazing man, um, founded the Calvary Chapel Syndicate. He was a neo-charismatic in a theological sense, or a sane and sensible moderate charismatic. Um, and he considered certain modern charismatic experiences to be charismania. That was the label he ascribed to them. Charismania. Charismania, or charismatic practices, such as drunkenness in the spirit, being slain in the spirit, holy laughter, and these uncontrollable spasmodic twitching movements, and this violent shaking on the ground, literally resembling a grandma seizure. And these images, I might add, are all over YouTube and are frightening, some of them, to see. 
According to charismaniacs, all these practices are said to be manifestations of the Holy Spirit. So we shouldn't be critical of them. According to them, these are spirit-induced manifestations. Ignoring the fact that the principal biblical manifestation of the Holy Spirit is the nine-part, nine-component fruit of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. And the ninth component to that spiritual fruit is self-control. So if someone's charismatic, ecstatic, emotional experience is out of control, then it is certain the Holy Spirit isn't in control, and that experience is either self-induced or it is demonic. So if we suggest someone's out-of-control experience isn't a manifestation from the Holy Spirit, and we suggest it could actually be demonic, it could even be Hinduism's kundalini false spirit, as I am convinced some are, if we made that assertion, are we blaspheming the Holy Spirit? No, we aren't, because we could easily be correct in that assessment. If we witness a questionable exorcism, and suggest it's possible Satan could be the influence behind that. There is a legitimate possibility that this exorcist and exorcism could be counterfeit. There's a possibility it could be counterfeit unless, don't miss this, unless the exorcist in question is Jesus Christ himself. And that's the reason this sin these Pharisees committed is so serious and is classified as unforgivable. The particular sin mentioned in Matthew 12 was specifically addressed, uh, specifically directed at Jesus himself, and in order for that sin to be recreated in that context, Jesus would need to return to earth and once more become the object of that same sin. This was a sin committed against the Holy Spirit operating through Jesus. And I don't believe this sin can be committed against the Holy Spirit operating in anyone else other than Jesus. The reason is because if the individual in question now is anyone other than Jesus, then it would be impossible for us to be sure it was the Holy Spirit that was responsible for that exorcism. It could be Satan counterfeiting that situation and using a fraudulent person in order to fulfill his own objective in deceiving people. The Old Testament prophesied that the promised Messiah would do miracles through the Holy Spirit's assistance. Simon Peter referenced that in Acts 10, verse 38. Notice how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who, Jesus of Nazareth, went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. That would be exorcism, for God was with him. These Holy Spirit-empowered miracles Jesus performed substantiated the fact that he was the promised Messiah. That's the reason the people mentioned in verse 23 started to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah, after seeing him heal this demon-possessed man. 
It's most interesting that these Pharisees witnessed that same miracle of exorcism from Jesus, the same miracle these multitude, this multitude witnessed, but unlike them, the Pharisees rejected his messianic claim. One author said, those who spoke against the Holy Spirit were those who saw his divine power working in and through Jesus, but willfully willfully refused to accept the implications of that revelation and in some cases attributed that power to Satan. Many people had heard Jesus teach and preach God's truth as no man had ever taught before, yet they refused to believe him. They had seen him heal every kind of disease, cast out every kind of demon, and forgive every kind of sin, yet they charged him with deceit, falsehood, and demonism. In the face of every possible evidence of Jesus' messiahship and deity, they said no. God could do nothing more for them, and they would therefore remain eternally unforgiven. Number three. Number three is that there are now no unpardonable sins. There are now no unpardonable, unforgivable sins. There is no sin that is now not forgivable through salvation in Jesus Christ. I want us to think through this. No matter what I do, the worst possible punishment society can impose on me is capital punishment. No matter what crime and or crimes I commit, the worst possible punishment that the current judicial system can assign me is the death penalty. That is the maximum punishment. Consider the fact that Jesus has already endured the death penalty on my behalf. Jesus paid the ultimate price in sacrificing his life on a cross as punishment on my sin. I could never submit a debt of wrongdoing to Jesus that would be returned to me marked in sufficient funds. The fact is Jesus Christ died for all my sins, therefore he is anxious and able to forgive all my sins. Psalm 103, verse 2 and verse 3, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Verse 3, Who, meaning God, forgives all your iniquities. Iniquities are sins. The problem is we tend to see forgiveness from a human perspective instead of from a divine perspective, and that is most unfortunate. Humans, notice, Humans are often reluctant to forgive. Humans are often reluctant, and I might add, resistant to forgive, but not God. Psalm 86, verse 5, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. Notice, humans might forgive, but then don't forget. Humans might forgive, but then don't forget, but not God. Isaiah 43, verse 25, I, even I, am He, God, who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. People, that is conscious and deliberate amnesia. Notice, humans might forgive minor agitations, 
but sometimes refuse to pardon major offenses. Humans might forgive minor agitations, but then sometimes refuse to pardon major offenses, but not God. Isaiah 1 verse 18, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Notice, humans put conditions on forgiveness. Humans impose conditions on forgiveness, but not God. Isaiah 55, verse 7, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly, notice, abundantly pardon. Then notice, humans might forgive one or two offenses, and then draw a line and insist, that's it, no more. Meaning there is a limit to our forgiveness, but not God. Lamentations 3, verses 22 and 23, Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not. Verse 23, they, meaning His mercies, are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Meaning God is faithful to be merciful and forgiving toward us. Then notice humans might forgive, but then hold a grudge. But not God. Jeremiah 31 verse 34 says the Lord, For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. God cannot hold grudges because God has chosen not to remember, meaning God has chosen to forget our sins. People, the point is that God's forgiveness isn't like human forgiveness. It has no limits. Scripture demonstrates time after time after time how God has forgiven every conceivable sin. Stealing. Deception, cursing, using God's name in vain, all forms of immoral sexual behavior, sexual assault, idolatrous worship, murder, gluttony, gossip, drunkenness, extortion, jealousy, occultic practices, unjustifiable anger, and on and on and on. It doesn't matter who someone is, or what someone might have done, no matter how heinous a sin or crime it might have been, through Jesus Christ, he or she can be forgiven. In 1772, the hymn writer, the English hymn writer, William Cowper, said in his now famous song, the first stanza reads, There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. The second stanza reads, The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there my eye, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. People, do we understand God's ability to forgive is not limited by man's sinfulness. There are now no unpardonable, unforgivable sins unless 
And get this, unless we reject the pardon Jesus himself has made possible. And if we do that, then all our sins are unpardonable. All our sins are unforgivable. Apart from Jesus Christ, all sins are unforgivable. I heard someone put a different twist and spin on rejection. I guess he is the eternal optimist. He said that if we're attempting to evangelize someone and that person turns down the Christian message, we are not to interpret that no as rejection, but we are to understand that no as he just didn't have enough information to say yes. That's positive thinking on steroids. (laughs) To tell Jesus no is to reject Jesus. And to reject Jesus is the essence of what these Pharisees did. The Pharisees' accusation that Jesus cast out a demon through the energy and enablement of Satan was just a verbal demonstration of an attitude inside them that represented a permanent and ultimate rejection of the Holy Spirit and his attempt to bring them to Jesus Christ. And that rejection part of the unpardonable sin can still be committed today. It is said that President Andrew Jackson had pardoned a man named George Wilson. That's a common name in more modern times. And not the grouchy, the same grouchy George Wilson who was next door neighbor to Dennis the Menace. Some of us remember Dennis the Menace. Different George Wilson. The defendant was convicted of robbing the U.S. mail and in doing so putting the mail carrier in grave danger. He was sentenced to death. He sat in prison. And then because of his friend's influence, the president heard his case and pardoned him. I should interject a personal footnote. President Jackson was our nation's seventh president and I am not a fan. He was a Democrat, a strong pro-slave trade Democrat. He was an anti-abolitionist, and he was also responsible for thousands of Native Americans that died during the forced relocation called the Trail of Tears. He was not a good man. But as horrific and repulsive as that is to me, those actions are irrelevant to this illustration. He pardoned this man. So one afternoon, the prison warden went to Mr. Wilson's cell and through the bars handed him this pardon from President Jackson. But George wouldn't accept that pardon. The warden said to him, you don't understand. You don't understand what this pardon means. This piece of paper from the president means you are a free man now. You are forgiven. You are absolved of all legal consequences resulting from the crime you committed. But George still wouldn't accept this pardon. He said to the warden, take it back to the president. It is said the United States Attorney General also came to his prison cell and begged him to accept this presidential pardon, but he still wouldn't. He just continued to say no. His Refusal to accept that pardon started a legal battle. Does a man have a legal right 
to refuse a pardon. Can a man be forced against his will to go free? This case actually went to the U.S. Supreme Court. And in the case, United States versus Wilson, from 1833, it was determined, quote, this was the rendering from the court, a pardon is a deed to the validity of which delivery is essential, and delivery is not complete without acceptance. It may then be rejected by the person to whom it is tendered, and if it is rejected, we have discovered no power in this court to force it upon him. In non-legalese language, that Supreme Court decision meant a pardon, don't miss this, a pardon is only a piece of paper until the guilty party accepts it. Through his sacrificial death for our sins on the cross, through his burial in the grave, and then through his literal resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ has made possible a full and complete pardon from all sins. But, but this pardon doesn't go into effect unless it is accepted. So the question is, have you accepted that divine pardon? Have you received Jesus Christ are you forgiven? Let's bow our heads. I hope you'll take those questions to heart. They're important questions that we all must consider. Have you been pardoned? Have you received judicial forgiveness from all sin? past, present, and future sin? Or is there a chance you will stand before God as a judge and be condemned for your sins and sentenced to an eternal hell? Are you a believer? Have you received Jesus Christ and the pardon that is found only in Him? Have you been forgiven? If you have any question about those questions, if you cannot answer in the affirmative, that you are a pardoned person, that you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that you have received him into your life. If you can't answer those questions, yes, then please, I beg you, see me after the service and we'll set up an appointment as soon as possible and sit down with you and share with you from the scripture how you can have Jesus for yourself. It's so simple. Father in heaven, you've heard what we've said. I never say it as effective as I ought to. I did my best, but I just pray, God, you will use this message to speak to our hearts. And if there's anyone here in this room who hasn't fully received Christ and hasn't experienced the divine pardon found in him, I pray that they would very, very, very soon. So we just commit this message to you and to the hearts of these people, and I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.